And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first met Raja Krishnamurthy in the early 2000s when he was the volunteer research director for another promising young Illinois politician named Barack Obama. Raja was a very successful young lawyer at the time, but it was clear he had his eye on public service, and today he represents a portion of Chicago's suburbs in Congress. Raja has a great immigrant story and a wide aperture on issues, but we started with the issue of the moment. He's a member of the House Intelligence Committee. We talked about events in Afghanistan in a conversation we had this week. Here it is. Congressman Raja Krishna Morthy, my old friend, it's good to see you. Hey, David. It's my honor. I'm a big fan. Well, we go back a long way, and we'll talk about that. So much so that I'm, I'm going to call you Raja for the rest of the conversation. But, you know, normally I would start by talking about your personal story, and your personal story is really compelling, and it's one that I want to get to. But we're talking on the day after Afghanistan fell. Uh, even as we speak, there are horrendous scenes at the airport in Kabul of Afghans who have cooperated with Americans, collaborated with Americans, supported American uh, troops and uh, intelligence and so on, uh, who are climbing the fence at the airport to try and force their way onto planes to escape the Taliban as the Taliban uh, search for them to punish them for cooperating with us. It's a horrendous scene. Uh, and it's it's like nothing that I've seen since the fall of Saigon in 1975. You're on the House Intelligence Committee. How did this happen? How did we? How did this happen with such swiftness that we got caught flat-footed? It's just a devastating disaster. What's unfolding there? I think we drank the Kool-Aid uh, from multiple administrations about the effectiveness of the uh, Afghan military and the government. Um, it turns out that they are almost completely incompetent and corrupt. Um, and on the other hand, we underestimated the Taliban. And, you know, they uh, are waging, an, you know, a jihad against infidels. And it turns out that that is incredibly motivating to them uh, in a way that, you know, money for these police and Afghan military are not uh, motivating to them. The, the one thing I was just going to say is I, I think that it's deeply disturbing what's happened with these allies of ours, the people who've helped us over the years uh, in Afghanistan, and the fact that we just haven't handled this situation properly. Uh, we've known for months that we needed to evacuate at least 17,000 what are called SIV applicants, uh, special uh, immigration visa applicants. These are our allies and friends. And yet we only managed to evacuate about 2,000 in the last two weeks. And um, I think that these folks are in deep trouble and will be targeted by the Taliban after we leave. Yeah, and there are lasting implications uh, for that when we, ask for, uh, when we ask for cooperation around the world. I mean, there's a lasting stain on our own honor uh, if if these people are left to to be tortured and to be killed uh, 
in Afghanistan. But I guess my question to you is, you 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 have been privy to uh, intelligence briefings. Clearly, this has been, you know, the president announced in April that we would be leaving. So you guys must have been getting regular briefings on this. And I know, let's just offer the standard disclaimer, you can't disclose uh, classified material. But generally, was the intelligence wrong? Yes, the intelligence was wrong. Um, I think that it was the impression that I got was that the military and the government would be able to hold out a lot longer, especially in Kabul and and some of the larger towns. And uh, it turns out that all along what was happening is that the Taliban was cutting deals with warlords and others all over the country, and we didn't know about it. And that helps to also explain why they completely stalled any movement in the supposed negotiations that were happening in Doha um, with us uh, and the Afghan government, even as they were changing facts on the ground. President Trump signed in September a a, a, an agreement in Doha with the Taliban that set May 1st as a withdrawal date. What did we get? <laughs> what, what assurances did we get in that agreement? And what did that set in motion? We didn't get much, I think, David. Uh, if I had to be very honest with you, I think that um, we are leaving Doha empty-handed, except perhaps for an assurance uh, of, of safe passage for our own diplomats and uh, American personnel. But I would note that there hasn't been any similar uh, safe passage being guaranteed for any of those thousands and thousands of people who have worked with us and for us. And uh, that is deeply distressing. We also released 5,000 prisoners, some of whom probably are roaming the streets of Kabul right now with weapons. Uh, So, uh, that was that was a big concession uh, for which it's not clear what we got. And we certainly didn't get any concessions that would uh, protect the the women and girls who now are subject to Taliban uh, rule again. Um, and that's, of course, a heartbreaking thing. I uh, worked, obviously, with Joe Biden in the White House in, 19- in 2009 when we had the AFPAC review. The, you know, we came to office. There had been drift in Afghanistan for seven years uh, because uh, of the focus on Iraq. And it was clear we didn't have a strategy in Afghanistan. The President Obama wanted that and uh, tasked everyone relevant in the government to work on this. And it culminated in this nine meetings in the, uh, in the Situation Room in which uh, a plan that was uh, submitted by the military to send 40,000 more troops to Afghanistan and essentially surge in Afghanistan uh, was reviewed. Um, I can tell you Joe Biden was the guy in the room who opposed that. And his point was, uh, we were our mission was to rout al-Qaeda and bring to justice the people who attacked us. Uh, and he said we should stay focused on that, that we, you know, th- we will never achieve, you know, the kind of goals that were being laid out uh, for civil society, for uh, the military and police, for government in Afghanistan, you know, without an open-ended commitment. And he was... He was right about that. Uh, he was he was right about that. That said, 
you know, the president's going to, and I'm sure that informed his thinking now, but he's going to bear some complicity for the way this ended. I think that the majority of people I speak with and my constituents and others agree with Joe Biden's sentiment that we needed to pull out, but the manner in which we pull out matters as well. And I think that um, I just have two observations. One is, um, you know, seeing those people, you know, clam, climb on the, uh, the planes as they are taxiing down the runways. Uh. Uh, it just, it just evokes the strongest emotions you could possibly imagine, <clears throat> especially for our veterans as well, David, you know, that, um, yes. the people who went to Afghanistan and, and served. And, um, I, I, I think that that, um, leaves a, an image that, um, will affect people's impression of whether or not, you know, we did the right thing in Afghanistan in, in terms of our departure. The other thing is, um, you know, the Taliban are a bunch of mendacious thugs. And the fact that we were not able to get an ironclad assurance in Doha and elsewhere that Al-Qaeda is not coming back um, is deeply disturbing as well. And there's already reports of uh, communications between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Uh, remember, that was why we went in in the first place. So if they were to return, that would also color um, how people view Afghanistan. Yeah, I think one of the dangers for Biden in making this decision, and I want to talk a little bit more about the decision because I, I, I understand the decision, uh, but uh, is if al-Qaeda regenerates itself in Afghanistan, and God forbid there are attacks on Americans that emanate from there, then we truly will have gone back to square one. And, uh, you know, right now I would say to those who served, and I honor everyone who served, one of the honors I had in working in the White House was traveling to Afghanistan, meeting some of the young service people who were uh, who were there. And, I, you know, just uh, really admirable uh, uh, young people who were risking their lives for this mission. Uh, but the mission was ultimately... Uh, as Biden stated in 2009, to rout al-Qaeda and bring them to justice. Um, you know, that happened. The question is whether we roll down the hill again uh, here. And um, yeah, one hopes that some message has been communicated to the Taliban that the slightest incident and they will they will once again have to pay a huge uh, price. But uh, as to his decision, Raja, the you know uh, Trump had reduced the uh, troop levels to twenty five hundred. Uh, it was clear that if the Taliban launched an offensive as they were preparing to do, that was inadequate. And you know you can see exactly what the uh, what the Afghan army had to muster here. So that was inadequate. So really he was faced with a decision of either sending significant numbers of troops back to Afghanistan on a permanent basis, really, or, uh, or withdrawing. That's exactly uh, I, right. I think most Americans, as you said, uh, would agree with the decision that he made on that basis. Totally. I think that uh, Americans have had it with Afghanistan after 20 years and $2 trillion and more than 2,000 troops dead in Afghanistan, um, they were ready to, to pull our uh, presence out. But um, 
again, I just go back to the uh, what we said before, which is the manner in which we depart, uh, the manner in which we treat those who served with us, um, I think will equally color um, how people perceive uh, our posture in Afghanistan. Yeah, no, that's the political question is, you know, I think that uh, I'm sure the president and others, I, I mean, I think this is something that he deeply believed, uh, but he also was informed by polling that said that public believed it as well. Uh, it, it will be interesting to see how those images, how those images affect public opinion. You know, the 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 uh, lowering of the flag at the embassy and the retreat uh, and these scenes at the the airport, you know, the, the you were only two then, but the but I remember uh, the helicopters leaving Saigon and people grabbing for the skids trying to escape. And uh, this certainly recalls that it's even more horrendous in some ways. And uh, it's it's uh, it's deeply wounding. It is. I, I, I the only thing I would say is um, there's still time to get these people out or as many of uh, these people as possible. We do have some leverage with a presence of six or seven thousand troops at the airport. The Taliban wants us the hell out of there and they they hate the presence of those troops. They don't want to get into a, a skirmish with them. And so we have to maximize that leverage, get our people out, get our friends and SIVs out as much as possible. And that could, um, you know, that, that, that could also uh, color how people think about what happens from here. Let me ask you a question. There were, there, you know, the, the war in Vietnam left deep scars uh, that were felt for uh, a generation after. And, you know, all of this does raise this question. Um, we, you know, Biden, Biden has said, look, there are, there are, you know, a dozen countries where people are, whose human rights are being abridged, and we can't send troops into every one of those countries. That is the truth. That is the God's honest truth. We want to believe that we will, and I want to believe that we'll stand up for every single solitary being on this planet who yearns for freedom and 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 uh and justice here in the United States and and elsewhere but uh you know we we clearly can't do that at the point of a gun uh everywhere in the world um how do we maintain our uh other than living uh, our own uh our own example here at home, how do we in the world stand up for human rights at the same time when, you know, we are forced to withdraw and leave so many people at risk uh, to the Taliban? I think that's a great question, David. And I do think that Iraq and Afghanistan have powerfully influenced how um, the majority of Americans, certainly my constituents, and I, I, argue the majority of lawmakers that I interact with think about the use of military force and for what purposes it should be deployed. Um, I think that with regard to um, uh, human rights violations uh, committed, whether it's by the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government or uh, the Russian government, um, I think we have other tools in our toolkit that we can exert, but it has to be done in concert with our allies. I think that's one very important lesson that we've also learned, which is 
um, so long as uh, some of these bad actors play, play us off against each other, nothing changes. But if we can um, uh, work with our allies and um, exert sanctions in a multilateral fashion, they can have some positive, positive influence. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Ben Rhodes, who you know well, uh, was uh, Deputy National Security Advisor for President Obama and very much involved in the national security decision making during those eight years. He has written a book. And in that book um, and on this podcast, he talked about the fact that if we uh, if we are sincere about our uh, commitment to human rights, that we have to really back it up. And he pointed out, you know, we we uh, we use these tools to pressure China on the sale of soybeans, uh, but we don't uh, use them uh, to pressure China or we hadn't uh, on their uh, the concentration camps where a million Uyghurs are being held. And so the question is how, you know, at, at what point, if you don't use the tools, if you don't use the tools in a really aggressive way, does your commitment ring hollow? I think that's a great point. And actually, uh, with regard to the Uyghurs, uh, we've uh, pushed legislation on a bipartisan basis to try to mandate that the administration, uh, first the Trump administration, now the Biden administration, actually take action with regard to this issue. But um, you're correct that at the end of the day, there has to be some consistency on it. Can I just mention two other things in this regard? One is, of course, we we routinely prop up dictators throughout the world um, who go on to uh, commit gross atrocities and human rights abuses against their country. And we look the other way uh, for uh, various reasons. Uh, You can look no further than Haiti, uh, which we've made into a basket case um, over the years. Um, The other thing that I would say is when we have the chance, we also have to exercise our soft power and help those countries that don't have the institutions that uh, would otherwise, uh, you know, be able to uh, take care of their people in the way that we would like. And that could lead to the instability and everything else that we see. Um, And I'm talking about in the specific case of COVID, you know, we have to be uh, at the tip of the spear and helping to set up a program to help vaccinate uh, the rest of the world. Uh, just the yeah. same way that we did with PEPFAR for HIV AIDS in Africa. Yeah. Um, and I can, I can speak more in detail about that because I believe so passionately about this, but um, there's so many missed opportunities with regard to our foreign policy and exercising our soft power that sometimes we only think about hard power and military power when it comes to trying to quote unquote, get our way or trying to influence mm-hmm. the outcome of something. Of course, that is a, from a, from a political standpoint, I think there's a, not a great appreciation among a lot of Americans for the importance of that. First of all, there's an assumption that um, this is sort of international welfare, that we're, you know, giving undeserving people, you know, this is a caricature of, of welfare programs here, but undeserving, uh, undeserving people around the world uh, money that that we need for our own purposes, and um, you know, you ask people in a poll or a focus group, well, how much money do you think that is that we spend? And people say, you know, 
10, 10% of our budget, 15, 25% of our budget. No, it's under one, under right. 1% of our budget. And it's not an investment. It, yes, there are humanitarian elements to it, but it's also an investment in a peaceful world and our own security. And, uh, you know, so it, I, I just think that's lost many times. Absolutely. And especially on this COVID David, you know, we have uh, launched legislation called NOVID, which is a play on words, no more COVID. And 116 of my colleagues have joined with me in trying to push the Biden administration to set this up because it's not only the right thing to do. I mean, I lost three relatives in India in our extended family to COVID uh, when the Delta variant first appeared on the scene there. But it's, it's also the smart thing to do, because if we don't do this, those variants come back here to defeat our vaccines. And that same kind of analogy can be applied elsewhere. If you don't use that soft power and help others, you know, it's like the, the old general said, either do this or buy me more bullets, one or the other. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. And it's not just about the the ramifications for us, but it also is a matter of building relationships that redound to our benefit. I mean, the Marshall Plan after World War II is a great example of that. We rebuilt Europe, uh, you know, and, um, and, you know, that, that created the conditions for great alliances, the great Atlantic Atlantic Alliance. You know who gets it uh, in the world uh, that that uh, needs to be uh, noted? It's, it's the Chinese government. They get it. They go around the world and they exercise this soft power in, uh, I would argue, nefarious ways. Uh, yeah. But they are right now... In much more transactional ways. M- much more transactional ways. They peddle this crappy vaccine around the world and and they get a lot of kudos and points for it. And, and we obviously uh, don't want to let them uh, do that. Um, and so we have to fill the, vac- fill the vacuum. So I, uh, I, I just want to say before, I was having a hard time summoning up the, uh, the title. Ben, ben Rhodes' book is After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made, and I highly recommend it. Um, but let's talk about your story, if we can. First of all, you, you were not born here. You were born in India. Uh, and your family comes from India. Tell me about your family in India and and their background and uh, their decision to come, your your parents' decision to come here. Sure. Yeah. So I um, was born in India, in New Delhi, India, and I came here when I was three months old. And my father came here to study engineering at uh, what's today known as University of Buffalo. My uh, grandparents lived in New Delhi. My uh, grandfather on my maternal side um, was a, an accountant for the Department of Defense. Um, at that period of time, right after independence, um, you know, there's a huge kind of uh, civil servant class. Uh, many of them came up through the British system, and many of them ended up working for the, the union government. And so uh, he was one of them, and he, he was an accountant at the Department of Defense. And uh, I always remember, David, he had one tie. And uh, he actually, I inherited that one tie from him, and I wear it with a lot of pride, uh, even today in Congress. 
but um, he uh, migrated from the south of India, a place called Tamil Nadu, uh, to Delhi. And by the way, that place, Tamil Nadu, and that town, those areas where my family came from is, is where Kamala Harris's uh, mother comes from. So her huh. maternal side of the family, yeah. she's Tamilian. Um, and so uh, they ended up going to Delhi and uh, my father migrated to Delhi as well. Uh, he uh, took a job uh, in the Central Water and Power Commission in, in uh, New Delhi as his first job out of college. Um, again, he uh, is one of those post-independence uh, professionals, you could say, and most of them ended up working in the government. And so he came to the University of Buffalo. Uh, you were, you, as I said, you were three months old. Uh, and then what happened? Um, so, you know, things were going really well um, until they suddenly kind of uh, went off the rails, the economic rails uh, in the recession of 1973. Uh, my father lost his income and um, you know, really, thanks to the generosity and goodwill of the people uh, of the United States, we were allowed to move into public housing and food stamps. Um, so I spent about half of my early childhood in those two programs. And uh, <clears throat> back then, you could continue to study and remain. Uh, and my father was able to complete his studies and then find an excellent job later on in, of all places, Peoria, Illinois teaching uh, engineering at Bradley University. And so they, uh, you know, unfurled the, the map and loaded up the U-Haul truck and started driving and driving until they reached Peoria. And that's really where the, the golden period of our lives began. Let me ask you about that. You know, Peoria is, is, is solidly middle American in the heartland. How are you received? Uh, how is your family received? Uh, because oftentimes, you know, I've talked to other other immigrant families. I'm, by the way, <laughs> the son of an immigrant, but it's a, that's a different story. But uh, particularly, uh, you know, from Asia and South Asia and so on. And there, it was not always all that hospitable. And there were incidents of bullying and incidents of, of discrimination. Uh, I mean, did you experience any of that? You know, uh, when we first came, David, there were so few Indian origin people, uh, maybe 10 to 15 families total uh, in Peoria. Um, we really, I have to say, felt um, so somewhat embraced by the community. Um, and uh, I, 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 at least initially, we did not feel that, uh, those, those negative feelings, but probably the opposite. Um, in fact, every, every night at the dinner table, I, I swear something along the lines of my father saying, you know, think of the greatness of this country. Uh, and he would say, you know, think of uh, the greatness of this country and whatever the two of you do, just, just make sure this country is there for the next families who need it. And I think, you know, they were like devout Hindus, but they were also devout Americans. And I think it was really shaped by their positive experience uh, treat, you know, in, in the treatment that the Peoria community afforded them. How about you? How, when you were in school, uh, were there other, uh, Indian, uh, origin kids there or were you, were you alone in that regard? No, there, there started to be more and more, uh, Indian origin folks. And, uh, just, uh, to fast forward today, there's between three and 4,000, <laughs> uh, Indian mm -hmm. Americans in Peoria. Um, 
basically during the time I grew up, more and more uh, people ended up uh, migrating there to Caterpillar, which is um, based in, mm-hmm. which was then based in Peoria, as well as the hospitals. Um, and, and then also people you know, came to teach at Bradley and were students there. So um, I think over time, uh, uh, maybe people started to maybe notice the differences uh, between me and others <laughs> a little more uh, in, in, uh, as we got older, I, I mean, I, I was a, a member of a racial, religious, and ethnic minority and an immigrant with 29 letters in my name. I kind of stuck out. Yes. And yeah, I yeah. think uh, people started to notice and remark on that a little more as I grew older. You, you couldn't, couldn't fade in with the other Christian <laughs> Morthys. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I always remember, you know, when I, this is of course much later on, but nobody could pronounce my name. Uh, it was, it was, it was unpronounceable, uh, to most people I grew up with in Peoria and, um, late, later on, just, you know, uh, fast forward, I, I introduced myself to someone in Chicago. I said, hi, my name is Raja Krishnamurthy. And the person looked back at me and said, Roger Christian Murphy. Very nice to meet you. <laughs> and then he said, I didn't know the Irish. That must have been a political India. consultant. <laughs> uh, Possibly. Yeah. So you excelled. You were the valedictorian of your class. You went off to Princeton, uh, followed in the family's footsteps and studied engineering. There's a little, there's a funny thing about that. My father, in my senior year of high school, he said, you know, Raja, you could do anything you want to do in life. And I said, really? And he said, yes, you can be a civil engineer, a mechanical engineer, an electrical engineer, or a doctor. And uh, so anyway, anyway, <laughs> I ended up getting the BS in mechanical engineering. And some people joke I practice the BS part now. But <laughs> Well, but you went to law school. Now, were there, was there deep disappointment when you decided to go to law school? I think, you know, once I checked the box on the engineering degree, um, they were good with uh, free, law school. Uh, free yeah. to decide for yourself. <laughs> you worked on campaigns in college. You worked. You did some work uh, like uh, grassroots kind of envelope stuffing for Bill Clinton and so on. Uh, went off to Harvard Law School. That's I'm told that's a place in the East that uh, <laughs> where they teach law. Uh, and then you worked uh, on the national advance team for Bill Bradley, a Princeton grad. Uh, when he ran for president. Tell me about that experience. Oh, it was tremendous, David. I mean, you, you've uh, obviously been on successful presidential campaigns. and uh, I've been on unsuccessful, too. The successful are more fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was on a, that was That was an incredible uh, experience for me, um, even though it was a, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't end up making it through the primaries. Um, but just having a chance to see what happens behind the scenes. Did you at that point say, I'm going to go practice law, but I, I, politics seems like something I want to do that. This is the life I really want. At, at that time, you know, I honestly um, was deeply interested in government. I thought maybe I could get an appointment someday somewhere to some position and, and, and serve. Um, but I knew that I wanted to, you know, pay off my <laughs> third world debt from law school and uh, um, obviously come back to Illinois and, and be closer to family and all that good stuff. 
in the early 2000s, which is when we met, you, you, you clerked for a judge, you went to work for Kirkland and Ellis, a very prominent firm in Chicago, doing, I guess, commercial litigation sort of things. Yep, yep. But I met you when you uh, were uh, working for a young guy named Barack Obama, who uh, was a state senator at that time. I guess you had worked for him in his 2000 campaign for for Congress. I was not part of that campaign. So, uh, <laughs> I had a bit role in that uh, campaign. <laughs> see, nobody claims a big role in that campaign anymore. Uh, but uh, he ran for Congress, lost by 30 points in a primary to an incumbent, Bobby Rush. Um, and a lot of people thought maybe that was the end of the line uh, for him. But you got a call from him. Uh, you were doing policy work for him. You got a call from him as I did in 2000, probably 2002. 2002, uh, tell me, yes. Tell me about that call. Um, you know, uh, basically, uh, I think it was his secretary, Jen, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, she said, uh, you know, w- can you come over to meet with him in his office? Uh, this was at Minor Barnhill Gallant, mm-hmm. uh, his law firm. And yeah. uh, he, uh, I went up to his uh, office in the Basically, it was the attic office of that of that firm. Yeah, and, they were they were kind of a, a, a <laughs> probably still around lefty kind of um, yes. civil rights firm, employment rights firm, very progressive. Yes. And as such, I think they were in a townhouse or something. A townhouse, uh, exactly. Yes. And and it was like a hundred degrees in that attic, man. It was just <laughs> I, I I asked I asked uh, then you know President Obama. I asked him then. Like, what, what are you doing here? It's so freaking hot. And um, he said, I'm, he was very honest. He was paying off his credit card bills from the 2000 campaign yeah. still. I mean, it was really significant. It had a significant toll. But anyway, he, he said, I have one race left in me. Michelle has said I can yeah. uh, run for Senate. And I, I said, where do I sign up? And and um, anyway, uh, I, I ended up becoming his issues director for uh, the first winning campaign that I've ever been on. <laughs> yeah, it was good of him to take you on, uh, given your track record. He, you know, he might have viewed you as a as bad luck. Uh, <laughs> I, but... I said I, I may have said something like, how much does this pay? And he said nothing. And I said, perfect. Sign me <laughs> up. So, yeah. Tell me about uh, working with him then. You know, everybody thinks of him now as this iconic figure. Uh, those of us who worked with him way back when think of him uh, as a guy much more grounded. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, t- tell me what it was like collaborating with him. Because obviously, you know, you're, you're the policy guy. He's an extraordinarily fluent, literate yes. s- student of policy. Yes. Uh, t- tell me what the collaboration was like. It was It was very simple, which is, we had a, um, a volunteer team of like 40 to 50 people, um, which uh, produced these briefs, you could say, three to five page briefs on any number of uh, federal topics. Um, as, you, as you know, he's incredibly fluent in so many areas of policy, but uh, there's, a, there's a large landscape of federal legislation and issues that you, you know, need to kind of get up to speed on. And he was a state senator. He was a state a senator. federal yeah. office holder. Yeah. Him. So every night I, you know, we would produce a, uh, an issues brief pretty much. What was amazing is, you know, uh, president Obama read it overnight and came back to me with questions the very next day, incredibly quick student. 
Um, and then once we started getting really good at it, then he said, okay, well, let's come up with some new ideas and let's see if we can um, propose something interesting and different. And um, so that's what I think allowed him to also kind of, uh, you know, show an even greater understanding and um, uh, energy uh, associated with his ideas and his intellectual uh, perspective on, on federal legislation. And as you know, we were about to go to war as well. well so let, there's a let, lot let me ask you on. about that. Let me ask you about that, because I distinctly remember a call in the fall of 2002. Yes, I remember it too. And this was when he was asked to speak at an anti-war rally as the Senate was poised to, uh, you know, give the president authorization to send troops uh, to Iraq. Uh, and um, and there was, it was an interesting, I mean, there were people on the call who said this is too politically risky, this is popular, don't get involved. Tell me what you remember about that call. I remember he felt very strongly he had to be there. And I also, I, I also remember uh, feeling that it was a, an important decision because as you might recall, Dan Hines and, um, and others had taken a much more reticent position on the whole matter. And so, you know, you, 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 you make a decision and you have to live with it. And uh, this is one of those, obviously, he, he made the absolute right decision, but it was very risky, in my opinion. Those were his uh, opponents in the campaign. Yeah, he was the only major candidate who uh, staked out an early position against war before the vote. And he made a speech the next day. I don't know, you know, I mean, I I can tell you that I did not see the text of that speech before he gave it. I don't know if you saw the text of that speech before he gave it. He wrote it the night before. Um, I recommend it to anybody. On it's, I think you can find it on Google. And he said that he feared a, a war of undetermined length, undetermined costs, and undetermined consequences that would make America a further target uh, for terrorism. And of course, that turned out to be prophetic. Uh, and it, it always, I look back at that and I say, wow, that was, that was impressive that uh, A, that he took the risk, but B, that his analysis was so trenchant and so on point. Uh, you know, the guy was a state senator from Illinois. That's right. I, I did not see the text the night before either. And I, I think that it's, it's fair to say he was in the small minority of uh, politicians across the country who took that position. And um, obviously, it, 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 it was a big uh, marker for him. And uh, it helped in all kinds of other ways. I might mention one other, two other things about that campaign, if I could, David. One yeah. is um, I really, really uh, uh, got to learn politics uh, from people like you and others. And uh, it was... Yeah, sure. Elaborate on that. No, I'm just... <laughs> and, uh, and I have to say that was, you know, one of the biggest treats of my political life. Uh, and, and, then, and then the second is, I remember, I don't know if you remember this conversation, but at one point you had uh, asked him to take a position on something. And um, I'm forgetting the exact subject, but I think it had to do with uh, economic policy. And I don't think that he wanted to. And he said something like, 
I'm not running for president or I'm not going to be president. And um, I remember uh, just that, that statement, that emphatic statement uh, loudly even right now. And uh, I just chuckled thinking about it. I don't remember that, but I always say I, I like him so much because he listened to me so little. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I appreciated the fact that he didn't make political, that the political calculus didn't come first with him. And, uh, you know, certainly we saw that on the Affordable Care Act, which uh, was a really, uh, you know, courageous uh, decision on his part. And um, so, yeah, I that was something I, I really valued in our relationship. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. So in the middle 2000s, you started in public service. You you took a uh, an assignment as a special assistant attorney general uh, to help start a public integrity unit in the Illinois Attorney General's office. And then you served as deputy treasurer uh, of the state uh, for uh, a guy named Alexi Giannullius, who's making a political comeback uh, right now and uh, running for secretary of state in Illinois, just as an aside. You ran for state controller in uh, 2010. You were 36 years old. Uh, you didn't, as you point out, didn't exactly have a friendly ballot name. Uh, tell me about that decision. And, uh, and, you know, you, you want a very, you, you, you want a very, uh, 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 close primary. Uh, I lost, or, I lost, you lost close. a very close primary. Yes, I yes, say. yes, yes. But uh, tell me about that experience and tell me about losing. You know, I didn't lose. I took the silver medal, David. Uh, but oh, I, uh, <laughs> that's good, man. You are, you have a very healthy sense of self there. That's very good. <laughs> I, um, it was, it was a devastating loss, uh, because the, the lead went back and forth, uh, a few times that evening. And, um, but I, I, I think that, um, I ended up feeling good about the experience cause I ended up, uh, just meeting so many people who, um, uh, and entrusted me with their resources and of course their votes, but it was tough, man. It's, it's, uh, it's a very public thing to, to lose an election. And, uh, um, certainly I, um, it, it's, it's one of those things that you, it takes a little while to get over, obviously. I should point out that you started that campaign in Peoria and said you wanted people to know that you were one of them. And this is where your roots were. I assume later when you ran for Congress from the suburbs, you didn't start in Peoria. Right? <laughs> uh, my yeah. roots had extended to different places. <laughs> yeah. You went into business and uh, you didn't go back to practicing law. After that, you went into business, uh, the firm that commercialized sort of research that was being done at, at, at universities. Tell me what you learned from that experience. Man, it was tough. Uh, I, I, I believe that um, as I like to say, I signed the front of the check and the back of the check. I turned on the alarm system at night. I disarmed it in the morning. It was a small business. There was only about 70, 60, 70 employees total. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, meeting a payroll each month is not easy. And um, it is kind of something that I, 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 I take with me to Capitol Hill every day. And I hope that 
we can do a better job in um, in helping small businesses. Quite frankly, just one experience I'll, I'll relate to you during the recession of 2008, the Great Recession, so to speak. We were in big trouble, and so I went to the banks and I asked for a loan to help us to to kind of cover our uh, expenses. And I was turned down left and right. Didn't get a loan from anybody. And um, that, you know, later on uh, informed my own thoughts about PPP, uh, which we mm-hmm. developed recently. And I made it very clear um, I had some authorship uh, with regard to some provisions of PPP that we got to make it as user-friendly and as easy as possible. This was the program to help small businesses, ostensibly small businesses. It ultimately was, it, it benefited larger businesses than I yes. think people ex- expected, but to uh, see them through the um, the pandemic. Yes, that's exactly right. I, I think we pay lip service to small business a lot in Washington. And um, I just wanted to uh, do more than that, especially during the pandemic. So you ran for Congress in 2012 out in the western suburbs of uh, uh, of Illinois, uh, and you ran in a primary uh, uh, against uh, Tammy Duckworth, uh, and you you know you did what you do. You put out a twenty seven page economic plan. You you checked all those boxes, um, and you got your ass kicked. It was an incredible experience. It's, it's that old joke, uh, experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted to get. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I learned it wasn't my time. Uh, but I think the one thing that ended up happening is, uh, uh, you know, I ended up, we, we ended up having a very civil contest. And uh, following the primary, I endorsed her, I campaigned for her, I raised money. Um, I wanted to make sure that the person that she was running against, Joe Walsh, you know, the original Donald Trump of Congress, uh, never, uh, never went back. And thankfully, he did not. Who weirdly emerged uh, in, in recent years as a uh, he was a talk radio guy, you know, doing the, what they do. And uh, and then he emerged as a, like a vehement Trump critic. It was kind of that was that was shocking. And then you ran again in 2016. So um, I'm tempted to say, what about no, did you not get? But uh, because you must, it must be discouraging to lose uh, a couple of races uh, and then run a third one. There's a rich tradition of this, by the way. Dick Durbin, the senator from Illinois, lost three races before he got elected to Congress. Uh, but, um, uh, but you were undaunted. I think it goes back to that, um, I don't know, that mission statement that my parents gave to me at the dinner table, David. Uh, you know, just whatever you do, you know, try to make sure this country is there for the next families who need it. And that that is kind of stuck with me um, for a long time. And uh, I, 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 I didn't know what was going to happen after the, the loss to Tammy. Um, but four years later, she uh, she ended up uh, running for the Senate. And, um, I ended up, uh, um, running for her spot and got the support of a lot of her supporters. And, um, you know, here I am. It's, I think someone said to me, you know, Raja, you know, you, 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 
the bad news is you lost twice. The good news is you haven't lost since. And so I just keep that with me. You got to Congress and you were serving in the minority. And then two years later, you found yourself in the in the majority. Talk about the difference between the two, because you're looking at a situation now where you could be back in the minority again. Uh, I mean, I, I know it's I don't want to make you unpopular with your caucus by having you uh, uh, acknowledge what is patently true. But um, tell me about the difference, because uh, it, I imagine it could be pretty unsatisfying uh, being in the minority in Congress. It was deeply unsatisfying. And also we had a, had a president who was actively stirring the waters and, you know, going after a lot of people who, you know, whether they were foreigners, whether they were Muslims, whether they were people on food stamps that you deeply care about. So you're constantly playing defense. And it's a, it was, it was an, it was a roller coaster ride that I don't want to go back to. But you may. Let's talk about this country we find ourselves right now and the country that Donald Trump has so riven. You were on the floor, I presume, or around the floor on January 6th. You were certainly on the Hill when that happened. Tell me about that experience. Tell me what you were doing. Tell me about what was running through your mind. So what happened was, uh, you know, basically the police, the Capitol Police came to my office and basically rousted me out of my office. They they, it turns out, I didn't know at the time, but a bomb had been planted about 200 feet from my office window because my office is basically right next to the RNC. And so um, they evacuated me twice. Uh, and then I ended up um, in someone in, in Joaquin Castro's office, actually. Uh, he and I are law school classmates. And so uh, Joaquin said, why don't you guys come here? I ended up being with him until the evening and then, and then walked out, uh, and, and, you know, what happened at that point, but, you know, it's, it's definitely cast a long shadow for the first time in my life. Uh, you know, when I travel on government business, I have a, a cop that would trail me from a, a car to a plane and a plane to a car. And then a cop shows up at my house a couple of times a day at random hours. Uh, and we have three school age kids and, that's, um, you know, I'm always concerned about them more than anything else. Now, your wife, Priya, did, who's a physician, did she call you? Were, I mean, what was, they must have been panicked when they, they your were, family, when they saw the scenes unfolding on the Hill. They were, they were panicked. Uh, my mother, uh, you know, was very, very upset and, and she just wanted to hear my voice. And, uh, but you know, basically, I have to say that was a day that where it's just adrenaline, it's just rushing. And um, it's hard to, I, I don't remember everything that happened, except that all I would be thinking about was, okay, who's outside the door? Is our staff okay? We only had a two staff that day because it's COVID. So it was a very skeletal crew in the office. And, um, you know, just trying to make sure that we're, we're safe. Mm-hmm. Were you frightened? You know, I wasn't frightened like at during the events, but I got to tell you that like when I see the, the video and it's hard for me to watch, I try not to watch it anymore. It, it brings back some really dark feelings or brings dark feelings. And, uh, you know, a lot of my colleagues, uh, I think 
it's a very personal thing for a lot of them. And, you know, some of them had to seek counseling, professional counseling and so forth. I asked you earlier about things that you experienced as a kid. And did you, as a, as an Indian American uh, experience uh, uh, bias, you, you mentioned that you have police uh, with you. In this environment, have those things surfaced? I mean, do you find yourself targeted because of your ethnicity? More. Yes, sir. I think that it's it's one of those things where, you know, Donald Trump kind of stirred up uh, a lot of maybe latent feelings have ne- that have now come to the surface, especially about um, South Asians, brown people, foreigners, immigrants. I seem to check all the boxes on uh, the part of America that, uh, you know, some of his followers aren't too fond of, to say the least. Yeah, that's got to be terribly unsettling. You sit on the, also unsettling is you do sit on the uh, Intelligence Committee. Just really briefly in the time we have left, talk about uh, the level of concern you have about continuing acts of domestic terrorism. uh, And uh, what are the roots of it? I mean, I'm deeply concerned, for example, about these algorithms that sort of do- drive people on these social media platforms to uh, to become radicalized because rage is is is, uh, you know, is profitable. Uh, it's j- just talk about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, Chris, Christopher Ray has made it very clear that, you know, the FBI feels that uh, these domestic acts of terrorism are perhaps their number one source of concern right now. And you're right that on social media, you know, big tech, whether it's Facebook or um, other companies, actually drive a lot of traffic um, uh, based on, you know, these algorithms that kind of perpetuate misinformation online and um, all the other uh, conspiracy theories that, um, you know, uh, go toward the QAnon uh, wing of the, you know, uh, uh, American people or to those who, uh, you know, believe in other conspiracy theories, white nationalist conspiracy theories and so forth. And so I believe that this is going to continue unless and until Facebook and others uh, really are made to police their platforms. Do you see congressional action compelling them to do that? I think so. If they don't clean up their act, David, I think there's a lot of concern that, you know, basically they have used kind of the lax kind of loopholes of the law to uh, essentially allow anything to propagate and um, and claim that they're not a publisher of anything. Um, mm-hmm. But I think at this point we've gotten past that. And I think unless they adopt more severe reforms, just take the vaccination lies that are propagating online. They're not willing to take those down uh, to the extent that they should. And, um, you know, it really hurts the public health and it just adds fuel to the momentum behind wanting to regulate them more closely. Before we go, I also need to ask you about uh, the bills that are before you, right, or, or will be before you, uh, presumably, uh, they are before you. The uh, infrastructure bill, that bipartisan bill that was passed by the Senate uh, with 69 votes, and the uh, reconciliation bill that was, or the outline of re- for reconciliation that 
that the Senate passed. You know what's going on in your caucus. You've got moderate uh, uh, representatives from largely from suburban areas like yours uh, who who are deeply interested in passing the infrastructure bill, concerned about some elements of the reconciliation bill. You've got progressives who have watched what Joe Manchin has done in the Senate, and they want to use the leverage they have in a closely divided House to get as many priorities of progressives into this reconciliation bill, each threatening to, 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 to block uh, these bills. Can Democrats really walk away from $4 trillion in investments here? How does this, how does this end? Doing nothing is not an option. It, it reminds me of Indian wedding, David. Uh, there's it's total chaos, a lot of posturing, uh, and but the bride and groom come together, get married, and everyone has a piece of cake at the end. And I think here, um, uh, you know, Speaker Pelosi, who you know will probably go down as the greatest, if not one of the greatest speakers. Yes. Yeah, I agree. She she already she's seen this play before, and. Um, she knows that she can't say yes to the moderates demand because the progressives will walk. Um, and then she can't say no to the moderates demand because the moderates will walk on reconciliation. And so she has, I think she's going to probably propose at least for the time being some kind of compromise measure that would advance both bills procedurally, um, allowing both sides to save face until the outlines of the reconciliation bill can really be fleshed out and um, everyone has a chance to really see what's in it before they're made to take a final stand. But um, I I think that uh, we absolutely are going to get an infrastructure bill and um, I think we'll get a reconciliation bill as well. Raja Krishnan Morthy, it is great to be with you as always. Thank you so much, David. It's been a true delight. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.